This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. In his book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of the White Collar Criminal, Harvard professor Eugene Soltes discusses the motivations, mechanics, and the cultural milieu of white collar fraudsters. From financial statement fraud to insider trading, Professor Soltes cuts across time periods, industries, and magnitudes of fraud to find the connecting themes in white collar cases. The culmination of his book focuses on the age old method of paying Paul with Peter's money, the Ponzi scheme. Quote, one particularly insidious type of deceptive enterprise is the Ponzi scheme. The operator of a Ponzi outwardly promises investors a healthy and even fantastic return on their investment. But rather than invest these assets in legitimate profit-making activities, the manager uses the proceeds from new investors to pay what he promised to earlier ones. A Ponzi scheme is fundamentally built on a lie and can be sustained only as long as enough new money is found to pay off prior obligations. The scheme seems so obviously fraudulent that it's hard to imagine the person behind such a scheme persuading himself otherwise." End quote. Even though there is evidence that similar investment schemes existed prior to the 20th century, Charles Ponzi was the first operator to bring the scheme into the forefront of white-collar crime in the 1920s. No matter how much Ponzi schemes are discussed in the news, no matter the number of enforcement actions, no matter the amount of lost funds and recoveries over the decades, the Ponzi scheme has persisted. We look to discuss the unique characteristics of Ponzi schemes that make them so evergreen and the legal and regulatory implications of Ponzi schemes in enforcement and in court. We're excited to be joined by Jordan Maglich, practicing attorney and founder of the legal blog PonziTracker.com, to get into the weeds on Ponzi schemes and their impact on the white-collar world, today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is good to be with you as always, Chris. I am excited for this episode. I'm excited for every episode, but of course, for for real this time, (laughs) we've been talking about doing this one for a year at least. And you and I have been swapping war stories about some of the work we've done in Mm -hmm. cases involving Ponzi schemes, Ponzi-like schemes, alleged Ponzi schemes. I I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But we've been talking about this for a while. So I'm I'm glad that we are finally going to get an opportunity to to do that for our guests. And I think they're going to love it. You know, as you noted up front, the, the Ponzi scheme has persisted and I'm constantly amazed. Like if you go on Google today and search for Ponzi scheme, and limit to uh, justice.gov or sec.gov, you will be amazed how many recent Ponzi schemes are out there. So it is something that we're still seeing. It's happening all the time, frustratingly so. And maybe this is a good platform to kind of talk about what some of the hallmarks of those schemes are and what folks should know so they can keep an eye out going forward. We are fortunate to have on the show today, as you mentioned up top, Chris, Jordan Maglich. Jordan is an assistant general counsel for litigation at Raymond James Financial. 
Prior to taking this position in the spring of 2022, so just a couple of months ago, Jordan was an attorney in private practice at several law firms, including, most recently, Quarles and & Brady and Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney, where his practice focused on commercial litigation, securities and financial services, and regulatory matters. Jordan has a unique experience of representing court-appointed receivers in regulatory enforcement actions involving investment fraud brought by federal and state regulators, including the SEC, the FTC, the Florida Office of Financial Regulation, and the Florida Office of the Attorney General. Through these efforts, Jordan and his colleagues collectively recovered tens of millions of dollars for the benefit of defrauded investors. Jordan is also the founder of PonziTracker.com, a blog and database focused on, you guessed it, tracking Ponzi scheme enforcement actions, case developments, and outcomes for alleged fraudsters and investors alike. Jordan is frequently quoted on issues relating to white-collar crime and Ponzi schemes, including in The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Market Watch, and The Street. Jordan is the president of the Federal Bar Association's Tampa Bay chapter, he is also a co-presenter with our own Chris Ekimoff at next week's Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. That's ACFE, also Chris's favorite acronym. The ACFE 2022 Global Fraud Conference on Ponzi Scheme Outcomes and Legal Theories. All that is to say, Jordan is the perfect guest for our Ponzi Scheme episode. Jordan, we are excited to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. And just to, I guess, to start off with my standard disclaimer, these views are my views only and do not represent those of, of Raymond James. So with that out of the way, let's get into it. All right, well, let's kick things off. I mean, as I mentioned, you guys are presenting together on Ponzi schemes next week for the ACFE. So you are way more prepared for this episode than I am, which means I'm going to sit back a little bit today and play a little bit of the moderator role. Unfortunately, that also means I'm going to be going off script early and often to keep it interesting. Chris, you talked about this in, in the sort of up top. Generally, a Ponzi scheme involves an investment fraud that pays existing investors reported returns on investment using funds that they collected from new investors, right? So I think that's the highest level possible definition. But Jordan, what I'd like you to do is just un unpack that a little bit. Tell us, you know, how do you think about a Ponzi scheme and what might be some of the hallmarks? Sure. So, you know, to, I guess, paraphrase Chris's definition, you know, a Ponzi scheme at its essence is Robin Peter to pay Paul. And that comes in many different shapes, as you can imagine. You know, one of the, you know, phrases I often use, which is somewhat cliche, is, you know, every Ponzi scheme is a fraud, but not every fraud is a Ponzi scheme. So you have your run-of-the-mill frauds where someone just says, give me your money, I'm going to invest it with this, and they end up, you know, stealing it or running away. That's not a Ponzi scheme, you know, by, by definition. When someone says, hey, Chris, give me your money, $100, and I'm going to guarantee you that I'm going to give you an 8% annual return from buying and selling emus, for example. But instead of me going and buying and selling emus, I'm actually using Chris's money to pay Kurt, who, an existing investor, what he thinks are his 8% annual returns from buying and selling emus. So, you know, these, as we're going to get into, these things take all different kinds of shapes and sizes. You know, they run, run from investing in the stock market to investing in real estate, 
to investing in Iraqi dinar contracts. It really, it spans the globe. But at the end of the day, it's someone telling you that I'm going to use your money to make this investment and I'm going to pay you these returns. But instead of making that investment, all I'm doing is using other people's money to pay you those returns to make it look like the investment is working. Yeah, that's that's a really helpful overview. I, and I mean, I think that's good to understand the the sort of nuts and bolts. If you could, Jordan, I'm just going to stick with you. What are a couple of red flags or hallmarks of a Ponzi scheme that, that you've observed over time? Things that would indicate to you that, hmm, something something might be wrong here. Sure. So, you know, one of the number one things to me is is a guaranteed return. And, you know, you'll see the SEC and other regulators, you know, tout this up and down because, you know, as we know, the only thing guaranteed in life are death and taxes. What, you know, what is not guaranteed is an 8% annual return every year, regardless of market circumstances or other items. So when someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got this investment opportunity, I guarantee you a percentage return, that's a huge red flag. And unless they're telling you it's treasuries that they're investing in and you're getting, you know, 0.5% a year guaranteed, then that's something that's a huge red flag. Another one is, you know, someone saying that they're the only one who's smart enough, who knows how to make this investment. So a level of secrecy that was, you know, Madoff, for example, if, if someone were to come to Madoff and say, you know, show me how this strategy works, he wouldn't tell them. And he would say, no, that's, you know, either you're investing with me or you're, you know, I don't need to explain this to you. And you see that a lot with, you know, people who, you know, might be deriving significant gains from, you know, investments that you might not typically associate such big gains with. And, you know, finally, and I guess this kind of dovetails with the last category, but, you know, someone who is not receptive to, you know, answering your questions or explaining how they're doing what they're doing. You know, there's this, you know, I think human nature to, you know, to maybe be attracted to a, a situation where, you know, you might be told, you know, if, if you ask any more questions, I'm showing you the door. So, you know, I would say those are three pretty big red flags that I've seen in my experience. Yeah, I think those are, are the big ones. I mean, one that I, I would add to the list just based on experience and observations is, you know, a, a lot of times I think the person perpetrating the fraud does things along the way to lend an air of legitimacy either to the enterprise or to themselves as a sort of expert or someone who's positioned to 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 earn that return that they're promising right so i mean we saw that you know with with bernie madoff right he was formerly the chair of nasdaq or with alan stanford he was a famous financier one of the richest people in the world i mean you can kind of go down the list even if you think about like lou perlman right he he ran a massive ponzi scheme it turns out but he was also the manager and the guy who found like insync and and backstreet boys so there just seems like something about these people that would make you think Okay, I mean that that seems legit, mm. which I think is is actually the the case with with Charles Ponzi, right? Who is the person that the Ponzi schemes are named after? Chris, I, I know you were recently deposed as an expert witness, and I'm going to refer to you as an expert for this episode only, mm. only uh, as, an, <laughs> <laughs> as an expert in a case where one of the things they were trying to figure out is you know sort of what is a Ponzi scheme or, or was it a Ponzi scheme in that particular matter. So, I mean, give us a little bit about, about Charles Ponzi and sort of the background on that and, and tell us a little bit about Madoff, if you would, because I know you worked on that too. Yeah. I mean, Charles Ponzi was 
I think it's generally accepted was not the first to popularize this idea, but is definitely the the most known and obviously the one named for that in the hundred years since. He was a, a business person in Boston in the post World War One era who identified an arbitrage strategy that he thought would make for a great investment. We'll never know what the original intention was. We only know about how it ended up. At the time, there were these items called postal reply coupons, in which an individual in the states would send a letter and a postal reply coupon to friends and family overseas, that individual would then go get the coupon redeemed at their local, you know, postal service in, in their in the foreign country, and then would be able to send a letter back for free, you know, kind of a, a good way to to transmit the value of needing to respond to the letter. Ponzi had come up with a theory that, you know, tracking the exchange rates between the US dollar and say the Italian lira at the time and and the value of the postal reply coupons, he could you know, buy and sell these coupons as well as as work the exchange rates to bring about a a good return, almost a hundred percent return to his investors. Obviously, that got a lot of attention. In theory, this idea could work. You know, on a single transaction, if you timed it right, and the exchange rates and the and the value of the coupon broke in your favor. But it's one of those things that Jordan, you talked about a little bit too, is that it's inherently risky, and in that if you're dealing with exchange rates, they're going to fluctuate, and you're dealing with the value of this coupon over time is going to change. So it's not a guaranteed return. You've got the potential for that return. And then secondarily, Ponzi's scheme was limited in its scale. There are a finite number of letters being sent back and forth across the pond, if you will, that might limit this topside investment strategy, this arbitrage strategy over time. But that didn't stop Charles Ponzi from going out and marketing this strategy. He promised his new reve- new investors that they could double their money just like his old investors would. And in that classic Ponzi circumstance, use that new money to pay off his old investors. However, there are great stories of the scenes outside of his office after a few months of, of hundreds of folks waiting for their money to come back that he was unable to satisfy over the time period. So after, I believe it was just the summer of 2020 in which this you know began, uh, became popular, and then folded because of the, the changing values of the currencies as well as the use of the coupons, there was some number where he took in $1,800 in kind of the first week and the number of coupons he would have had to buy under his strategy was something like 54,000 uh, you know, postal reply coupons, which was way more than the you know, handful of investors that had given him the $1,800 would ever utilize. Uh, so the scope there was a problem. And you know, we could talk for, for hours about Madoff specifically, and there have been a lot of great movies and books out there written. If you're interested, you know, check that out. I had the privilege of working for the expert witness who was selected to support the bankruptcy trustee over the Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities bankruptcy. He was famous for those guaranteed returns and the subsequent evaporation of what was $60 billion of paper investment. And we'll get to why that's a a paper number at the end of his scheme. You know, like Kurt talked about, Madoff was kind of seen as a scion in the trading industry. His arbitrage strategy was something that was known as a split strike. And again, this is what he reportedly told Invest that he would undertake. This is not actually, he did not purchase enough securities or or options contracts to get this strategy off the ground. Those option uh, contracts limited or collared the amount of value that could be lost on the trading strategy, as well as limited the gains. And that was how he described his ability to guarantee his returns. The problem is when you've got hundreds, if not thousands of investors, and you're buying and selling these blue chip stocks on a daily basis, 
you need to purchase these spot options contracts to a significant degree, especially when there's thousands of, of investors and then these feeder funds, which themselves have thousands of investors in them. It became another problem of scope, similar to Charles Ponzi's 54,000 uh, postal reply coupons. Madoff was listing on the aggregation of his customer statements hundreds of millions of options contracts that he was buying on behalf of his investor clients, when really on the trading days that those options were being purchased, the DTC only listed about 10,000 options contracts in those. So we're looking at, you know, 10,000 times X, the amount of options contracts that were there and just a scale and scope that would never come to light for Madoff. So some similarities there. And then the one other factor, Kurt, I want to bring up about Madoff and Jordan, you and I talk about this at length. It's interesting because of where we're at today. You know, 2008, $60 billion Ponzi scheme unravels. Everyone has lost their money. But through the work of the trustee, there have been about $19 billion in clawbacks returned to the bankruptcy that can then be shared with harmed investors or investors who lost their money. That, by far, in all of the leading literature on recoveries, is an anomaly in recovering almost the you know total amount of what was the principal investment of those investors. That $60 billion number really starts with a $20 billion principal investment on behalf of all of those thousands of investors that was inflated by Madoff's purported guaranteed returns. One of the benefits and why Madoff lasted so long in this scheme was to continue to encourage his investors not to take their money out after they've made 20% per year, but to reinvest that and compound that return with him. So that's the delta between that $60 billion headline number and the actual $20 billion of principal that was invested with Madoff. And that's such an an interesting and and nuanced fact to Madoff is that $19 billion collection amount that's been recovered by the trustee and and redistributed. So again, we could spend hours on Madoff. I just like to kind of pull those those ideas about scale between Charles Ponzi, the the namesake, and Madoff, you know, 100 or so years later being in the same boat. Kurt, before I get too far, uh, you know, my ego too inflated with that expert label you've given me, I know you've spent a little bit of time working on Ponzi schemes as well in your career. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't work on on Madoff, which was, as you said, a $60 billion Ponzi scheme. But, you know, I, I did spend years working on the second largest ever Ponzi scheme, which weighed in at, at $7 billion, which is uh, both massive but seemingly small as compared to Madoff. And that was the, the Allen Stanford Ponzi scheme. I uh, also worked for a while on the uh, Scott Rothstein Ponzi scheme, which was about a $1.2 billion Ponzi scheme. I think that puts it somewhere in the top five or maybe the top 10. So I've done some some work in this space, you know, just picking up on a couple of themes that we've talked about here. You know, my work was usually for third parties, uh, financial institutions that banked the, the alleged Ponzi schemers. And you know, it was kind of interesting. Part of what we were doing was working with people uh, li- like Jordan uh, in circumstances where he's represented a receiver to try to figure out if there was any money stowed away somewhere that could be recovered for the benefit of investors who were harmed through the scheme. But but part of it was also just figuring out how the schemes worked. Because again, one of the things that I think these, these fraudsters, these Ponzi schemers do well is sort of build out a framework or, or build an organization that looks and feels and operates a lot like what you would expect a legitimate 
operation to do. So they have all the pieces. They have the the accounts and the relationships, and they fool not only just investors, but sometimes they fool their their colleagues at third party vendors, whether that's you know a bank or the person that provides some of their software, you know the security guard that works in the building if they if they have bricks and mortar. So it's really kind of fascinating to just see how sprawling these these schemes can be and how much goes into making them seem legitimate. I mean, if you think about Alan Stanford, for example, there were multiple organizations in this web, including you know a holding company that was based in Antigua, a broker dealer that was based in the US that had I believe hundreds of employees, you know, registered representatives that were out selling financial products to investors. At the same time, these organizations are sponsoring huge global cricket tournaments and they're sponsoring PGA events here in the US. You know, all along the way, everybody believed in the legitimacy of of the organization from third parties through investors. So, I mean, that was sort of one of the takeaways I got from working on these cases is just understanding how how they sort of do it right not so much the why but how the other thing that's interesting just picking up on one of the things you said chris is this stanford at least was not a case where they were able to to recover all of the principal as i said that was a seven billion dollar ponzi scheme i think as of last year they had recovered about one billion dollars and just for context he was convicted and sentenced to 110 years in prison in 2012 so in 10 i started working on that case in 2009 so in like 10 or 12 years they've recovered about one billion out of seven billion so madoff's a little bit of an outlier in in that respect i would have to say yeah, I think that recovery is probably a little bit more in line, but we'll we'll peg Jordan with the tough questions on the receivership side. But so, Jordan, we're talking about Ponzi schemes, right? And and to to the layperson out there might say, okay, great, this is just another type of. But I think you talked a little bit about what makes it unique, and and I always joke with Kurt. Two of the questions I love to ask on this podcast are, so what, <laughs> and who cares. Right. So, so what and who cares about whether something is a Ponzi scheme or not? And I know in some of the expert work I've done, as well as a lot of the court cases that we've discussed together, is this idea of a Ponzi presumption when it comes to to matters of law. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that means and, and the so what and who cares about whether or not something's called a Ponzi scheme? Sure. You know, Ponzi schemes, you know, by nature survive when there's more money coming in to to be able to pay the, the existing obligations. So once, you know, and I've heard it said often, you know, new, new funds or new investors are the lifeblood of a Ponzi scheme. And when those, you know, exi- those incoming funds aren't enough to pay the existing obligations, you know, it starts your, your death spiral, um, for lack of a better word. So when a Ponzi scheme collapses, it's usually not because the Ponzi schemer is making a killing or has, you know, legitimately realized returns of, you know, X, you know, for his investors. It's because they're running out of money. They've missed a payment. They've absconded. They've left the country. And then regulators step in. You know, usually if you know the regulator thinks that there's either some assets left or there's some avenues to recover additional assets, a regulator might ask a court to appoint what's called a receiver. And a receiver is a, a court-appointed fiduciary similar to your bankruptcy trustee, but subject to some different rules, some interesting distinctions. And the receiver is basically given all authority to act on behalf of whatever entities are placed in receivership. That, in essence, you know, takes away the the evils, as a a very memorable case, Scholes v. Lehman indicates, and replaces it with a fiduciary whose whose sole and fiduciary duty 
is to do whatever he can to recover funds for investors. Now, like I said, when a Ponzi scheme collapses, you know, a receiver is often lucky to find, you know, maybe six figures in the bank, maybe if he's lucky, a couple million bucks here or there. And again, that that may pale in comparison to how many how much funds were actually raised. So what the receiver, you know, and immediately is trying to do is, are there other avenues of recovery here? And the biggest avenue of recovery in a Ponzi scheme, and what often is the kind of the touchstone as to whether investors will see more than pennies on the dollar, is are there third parties that I can recover money from? Because there's probably not much money in the bank. Maybe there's some flashy cars or planes, but you know they may they may seem like expensive assets to you and me. But when you factor in the cost of finding them, maintaining them, storing them, eventually selling them, you know it, that's they may not be the gold mine you were looking for. So what a receiver will do is, you know, first, are there third parties such as investors who might have gotten more money out of the scheme than they put in? And you can imagine the shock, you know, that some investors may experience when, you know, they make an investment, say I invested with you, Chris, and I put in a hundred bucks and through a couple of years, I ended up getting out 150 back and I cash out my investment. I say, great, that was a great investment, made 50%. And then a couple of years later, a receiver comes knocking to my door and said, you know, hey, by the way, you know, that $50 you made in profits, that wasn't actually profits. That was actually just stolen, stolen funds from other investors and I'm entitled to it back. And the case law generally is on the receiver side and it's gotten stronger saying that it's not fair for an investor who already got back all of their principal to be able to keep that those extra profits, those false profits as we call them. So a lot of the time, a receiver will file a lawsuit if that investor doesn't willingly give back their false profits. And there's this legal presumption, it's called the Ponzi presumption. And you know how it factors in, and I won't get into the, the arcane legal details, but there are various state fraudulent transfer laws that are not designed specifically for Ponzi schemes, but they're basically to help creditors. You know, when when there's been a transfer to another creditor that might, you know, as they call it, hinder, delay, or defraud a different creditor, that law can allow a receiver or whoever's bringing the action to set aside that transfer. So there is a somewhat of a difficulty or a, a process in invoking the benefits of those kinds of laws because you have to prove that the transfer was fraudulent or that it had well, it was it was designed to hinder, delay, or defraud a creditor. So what the Ponzi presumption says is if the receiver can establish that there was a Ponzi scheme being run during the times that these transfers of these false profits were being made, then that establishes that any of those transfers were in fact fraudulent and allows the receiver to kind of meet his burden of saying that, hey, I've, I've shown that these transfers were fraudulent, these false profits, and I'm entitled to have them back. So I'll, I guess I'll stop there because I know I've been talking for a couple minutes, but that's kind of how the Ponzi presumption factors in. And, you know, it's been used very widely and, you know, perhaps rightly so, but it's not absolute. And there's been some challenges to it recently as well. Yeah, that, that's helpful to understand. And, and it makes sense, right? One of the things that you're trying to do is make sure that you're able to to get back, you know, money or assets that were inappropriately sort of diverted from from the fraud to give them to people who were harmed. I mean, I think there are some important limitations on on maybe the reach of the Ponzi presumption. You know, for example, a lot of times you can't claw back things like fees that were legitimately paid to a third party vendor, right? Like if you if you're using a phone service and and the the business fraudulent or not was paying them their fees every month, those kinds of things you typically can't get back, or at least that's been my experience, Jordan. But I, I don't know how you would react to some of the the sort of limitations on that presumption. 
So that's absolutely right, Kurt, and I, I and I agree with you know, with your characterization of that. That's because you know when these receivers are using these fraudulent transfer statutes to try to recover funds, part of the elements required to assert such a claim include that the receive the recipient of those false profits did not provide reasonably equivalent value, and that they also acted in good faith. And in the context of an investor who you know invested a hundred dollars and withdrew his investment and got you know 150 back, which included 50 in false profits, the law generally recognizes that that investor has you know provided value for his original $100 investment because he had a claim to get that back. So his value is you know his claim for that money back because it was his investment. Now, where the law draws the line is any of the false profits. You know, when those are just money stolen from other people, you know, he certainly has no right or entitlement to those false profits. And it goes back to your initial point, Kurt. You know, you think of it as a fairness circumstance. If you have an investor who invested $100, didn't take any out, and when the Ponzi scheme busted was out his entire $100 investment, it's difficult to put them in to compare them to an investor who had withdrawn their entire investment of 100 and you know 100 plus $50 in false profits and you know to put them side by side. So, yeah, I mean, you're right, the law has recognized that you know, there are certain third parties who, you know, are entitled to keep transfers, you know, such as fees or payment for services rendered because they had provided you know, reasonably equivalent value. And there's no reason to believe they didn't act in good faith when they received those funds. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it because I think it's, you know, I would put it in a bucket of things that have the impact of decreasing the the, the value or the amount of assets that can be recovered, right? So if you've got initially some, you know, some pot of money that investors gave the fraudster and then he or she is spending it on legitimate services provided by third parties acting in good faith, you might not be able to get that back. Or if you know, the person goes out and buys, I think you you mentioned a, a plane or a boat or something, Jordan, right? Maybe you can't sell it for as much as they purchased it for. or and, and other money just kind of disappears in various ways. I mean, I think a lot of times these people are sort of funding lavish lifestyles and paying for things that you just can't get back. You know, whether, maybe that's airfare or hotels. But so there are lots of ways that the money just kind of trickles away, which leads me to to my next question, Jordan, you know, having represented receivers or corner pointed receivers, you know, you're trying to go find that money. And I, I guess I wonder what you think should be the expectation of investors who were harmed through a Ponzi scheme. Like what what might they expect to get back? I, I, unfortunately, the, my short response would be on on average, very, you know, like I mentioned, when Ponzi schemes collapse, it's because there's very little money left. It should surprise no one that when this death spiral is occurring, you know, this the Ponzi schemer, the last thing they're thinking about is, you know, how they're going to protect their investors or how they might make them whole. Instead, they're, you know, they're trying to put money out of reach of the receiver or any other authorities. They're trying to figure out how they can escape or they're, you know, they're sending money to their family or friends with what's left. I mean, if Chris may remember this vividly, but, you know, when Madoff was arrested, he had a stack of checks that were ready to go out to some of his closest family and friends, you know, with what was left of the billions of dollars he had collected. He wasn't, you know, trying to stroke a check to every single investor to give whatever he could. He was thinking about himself. So I think, you know, when when an investor, you know, realizes that there's been a Ponzi scheme, you know, the circumstances are very dire at the beginning. There's very little assets there. And their, you know, their I think their hope of making any meaningful recovery, you know, is solely dependent on you know, the efforts of the receiver and, you know, the regulatory agency that's involved. Like I mentioned, you know, the 
I think the large difference between, you know, a minimal recovery or de minimis recovery and a substantial recovery is the ability to, you know, look to third parties to subsidize any kind of recovery. And it's not only, you know, investors who might have gotten false profits, but it's also third party professionals who, you know, might have provided services to the scheme that, you know, maybe didn't fulfill the duties they had. And those have been law firms in the past. Those have been banks, you know, to a lesser degree, accounting firms. But, I, you know, for Rothstein, like you mentioned earlier, Kurt, you know, the the main reason that there was such a substantial recovery and, you know, call it the holy grail is 100 percent was, you know, TD Bank ended up, you know, paying many settlements, you know, for its role in the scheme. And it eventually settled with the trustee to, you know, pay a significant amount of money the, that would eventually compensate the victims. I think we've kind of, we could talk about Ponzi schemes, definitions and outcomes, you know, all across the board. And, and Jordan, you are the the expert here, even though Kurt, you know, I, I'm still going back to the smile I have on my face when you call me an expert, at least for this episode. Jordan, I want to get into your work with PonziTracker.com. I think it started in 2012 when you started putting together this database. Talk to us about the website, how it got started and, and kind of what your what your focus is for it. Sure. So it actually was June 2011. So now that I'm actually thinking about it right now, it's about 11 years ago. I had just started you know, the year before at Weingare King, which is a small securities boutique here in Tampa. And, you know, one of the, you know, literally started and, you know, I had two kind of big cases that I was put on. One of them, you know, for another day, but it involved a failed Colombian Coke deal. Not what you think, actually metallurgical Coke, not cocaine. Um, but the other one was uh, Arthur Nadell who ran a $300 million Ponzi scheme from Sarasota, Florida. And the Wyand in the Wyandere King, Burt Wyand, had been appointed the receiver shortly before I joined the firm. So, you know, you think in context here, you know, I joined in August of 10. Uh, Madoff was, you know, December, I think of 08. Um, you know, after Madoff, it was like a, a set of dominoes. You know, all these other investors and, you know, people associated with, you know, these various funds said, oh, you know, Madoff was a Ponzi. You know, let's make sure ours isn't a Ponzi. Or, hey, I'm, I'm getting my money out, you know, immediately, you know, who knows what could be a Ponzi. So you had a whole line of dominoes going of different, you know, Ponzi's being discovered in the years after Madoff. And Arthur Nadell was one of them, you know, ran a large Ponzi scheme out of Sarasota. I actually am from Sarasota, you know, had many, you know, colleagues and people I knew who had been caught up in it. And, you know, my boss was the receiver. So, you know, as we were, you know, trying to untangle this with the rest of the team, you know, all these novel legal theories were being, you know, put to use and really just trying to find ways to maximize the recovery for victims. And it occurred to me that, you know, no one was really keeping track on these Ponzi schemes. And, you know, it, it seemed like every day you would read a news uh, headline that, you know, another Ponzi scheme had been discovered. So, you know, had the idea, you know, went to, went to Bert and I said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a blog on this. You know, what do you think? That was a great idea. And, Kind of went from there. So, you know, it started as a, you know, a hobby and it also, you know, it helped me because, you know, not only was I writing a bunch because there was no shortage of content to write about, but, you know, you're getting to see what, you know, folks in Madoff or folks in Petters or Stanford or Rothstein, you know, what's working for them? What are they doing to recover assets? And really just keeping up to date, you know, was there a good decision on this? Was there a bad decision on this? And, you know, it's, it started as a hobby. It kind of spiraled out of, you know, I, wasn't married, didn't have any kids then. I was writing, you know, an article or two a day. And, you know, before I know it, it's 11 years later and I've got thousands of entries on there. Started, you know, keeping tabs on, you know, the numbers of schemes that were uncovered every year and keeping a database. And, 
you know, before you know it, I had logged almost, I think, a thousand different schemes. So, you know, it's it's been a, a very fun experience, if, if, if there's anything fun about, you know, being involved in a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, it's been very educational, not only for me, but, you know, I think for people who, you know, come across it. So that I guess that would be my, my story about how it started and kind of where we're at today. So I'm curious how you how you keep up with it. I mean, it, that's a lot to to do. That's a lot to to be writing at that frequency, to be finding these cases and and maybe figuring out which ones of them are are blog worthy. So I mean, how how do you do it? I'm guessing you don't write about every single Ponzi. You know, like I said, if you Google it, there are just tons and tons and tons. So how are you finding the ones that you think are are interesting or important for some reason and that work their way onto PonziTracker.com? So, you know, I, I, I had a little help and, you know, I had various news alerts set up with Google News. So I, I would get an email anytime that there was a news article about a Ponzi scheme. I also, you know, got all the litigation releases from the SEC, the CFTC, a couple other agencies. And, you know, I didn't have much of a life those days. Let's, let's be honest. You know, I would work all day and work long hours and I'd get home and, you know, write an article or two. So, you know, do that over a couple of years and, you know, you, you start accumulating hundreds and hundreds of of pages or of posts. You know, in terms of criteria, you know, you're right. I didn't write about, you know, a scheme that maybe raised 100 grand or 200 grand. Unfortunately, during those days, there weren't many of those. There were schemes that raised 10 million or 50 million or 100 million or billions of dollars. So, you know, the, I often tell people, unfortunately, there was no shortage of content. So, you know, I generally, you know, when I, when I track these things in the database, I generally only include schemes that involve either money raised or reported losses of a million or more. As I mentioned, typically the the amount lost is many, many, many multiples of that. Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned, there's no shortage and the, the numbers are maybe eye popping or surprising, you know, not so many hundred thousand dollar schemes, but more in the, the tens or hundreds of millions. Every once in a while you get, you get a billion dollar case or more. I mean, how do you how do you feel about that? Right, we're going to ask you a sort of touchy feely question. Is that is that disheartening? You know, do you think we're ever going to get to a, a point where we're seeing fewer Ponzi schemes, or is this is this just sort of a a part of the fabric of the sort of investing world? Yeah, you know, I I liken it sometimes to whack a mole. You know, someone gets caught, and you know, there's one or two that pop up in their place. Um, you know, we have to we have to realize that Ponzi schemes are not a new or recent thing. You know, one thing I'd I'd like to write about soon that I had seen you know in a book is if you remember President Ulysses Grant, his family was actually wiped out when a Ponzi scheme collapsed. So Charles Ponzi may have you know earned the moniker of Ponzi scheme that sticks around today. You know, candidly, if I think if no one had called it a Ponzi scheme then, we might be calling it a Madoff scheme today just for how awful Madoff scheme was. But you know, no, unfortunately, I, I think that you know the only the only way that Ponzi schemes are going to go down is, you know, is if there's you know much increased regulation, and if there's a lot better education about how these things work, and that's kind of how that's kind of the role that I see Ponzi Tracker playing, you know, with thousands of you know blogs blog entries that are you know indexed on these various search sites, you know, hopefully when people are typing in you know guaranteed returns. And if, you know, if the SEC's webpage doesn't pop up, then maybe, you know, 10 or 20 of my posts pop up and say, well, so-and-so is arrested for this one because of guaranteed returns. So, you know, no, I, I, I don't see them ever disappearing. I think, you know, they're going to be endemic. But, you know, I guess the, the question is, will they remain rampant or, you know, will better education and regulation, you know, trim them down to something that's more manageable? 
On the education point, let's maybe pivot to a little bit more of a positive part of today's story. You know, as I mentioned earlier, Jordan, you and Chris are going to be giving a presentation to the ACFE next week as part of their 2022 Global Fraud Conference in Nashville. Chris, why don't you tell us maybe a little bit about the ACFE, although they're old friends of the podcast, of course, but tell us a little bit about the conference itself. Yeah, so the ACFE, longtime listeners will know we've done some collaborations with them in the past. The Association of Certified Fraud Examiners really came about in the 1980s when a few of the leaders in the accounting and law enforcement world identified the overlap of those two Venn diagrams and wanted to continue to equip future what they call fraud fighters to be intelligent and and discerning from a finance and accounting perspective while also having the investigative tool sets you know that are more traditionally housed in a law enforcement background so for the better part of you know more than 30 years now the ACFE has been looking to to Jordan's point better educate and and help support those of us in in the anti-fraud community the 33rd annual Global Fraud Conferences is what Jordan and I have the pleasure of speaking at next week. I believe there's over 100 speakers and more than 90 educational sessions. Obviously, Jordan and my favorite will be one of the morning sessions next week. There are also some other speakers out there, maybe with, with less renown than Jordan and I. Mm-hmm. Folks like the acting SEC Director of Enforcement, Gerber Grawal, famed author Michael Lewis, a gentleman named Pav Gill, who was the whistleblower for the Wirecard fraud over in Europe, and Alex Gibney, who is a documentary filmmaker of Theranos fame with his film, The Investor, as well as the Enron biopic, The Smartest Guys in the Room. So maybe Jordan and I aren't the headliners at next week's conference, but there's always talk about Ponzi schemes and in and, and these fraud circles. And with Jordan's work on Ponzi Tracker and some of the recent investigations that I've worked on, you know, we posited last year that this might be a good avenue to kind of talk about a lot of the things we're sharing on the podcast today, some of those insights and and the analysis of, of thousands of Ponzi cases over the years and, and sharing some of that with with the attendees. Yeah, I'm, I know it's going to be great. I, I'm looking forward to listening to it at some point in the future. I'll ask you how in just a minute, Chris. But the title of your presentation or your session rather is Don't You Lie to Me, Analysis of Ponzi Scheme Outcomes and Legal Theories. It's a great title. And Jordan, I wonder if you could just share with us a couple of the key insights or, or takeaways maybe that you are hoping folks who attend will take away. Sure. You know, I, I think one of the greatest takeaways from this presentation is going to be, you know, just the access to a much more robust database. You know, as I mentioned, I've been keeping these figures since I think 2009, you know, had the, had the help of a fellow by the name of Chris Marquette, who had initially been compiling, you know, a list of the schemes over the years. And, you know, I've been, you know, keeping them up on a semi-annual basis. Chris had approached me and, you know, the folks at RSM have been really helpful in, you know, providing even more detail to these schemes. So, you know, I I think one of the greatest things to me about the blog is the database, you know, to be able to see, you know, this data and visualize it and, you know, maybe see things that you might not have realized before. You know, and look, we're we're cognizant of our audience at the ACFE. I mean, these are sophisticated, you know, folks in the financial industry and the securities industry. You know, most probably know what a Ponzi scheme is. They're probably more worried about, hey, you know, how do I advise a client if they ask me to do due diligence on what a Ponzi scheme is? So, you know, I think one of the takeaways is, you know, being able to better, you know, spot some of the, you know, warning signs of a Ponzi scheme to be able to ask the right kinds of questions. You know, like I think Chris had mentioned in the very beginning with with Charles Ponzi scheme, you know, he was telling investors that he had purchased way more postal relay coupons than were in circulation. 
Madoff, same thing. He was buy, you know, saying he was buying all these options, but if you looked at DTC, there was not even close to the number of options that Madoff said he was purchasing to the ones that were actually being traded on those days. So if you just think, you know, if you're if you just do your elementary due diligence and ask a couple questions and verify, you know, the assets are being held where they say they are, the trades that are being made are were actually made when they said they were, you know, you may, you know, unknowingly save yourself or your client, you know, a whole big mess. So, you know, that's a big takeaway. And you know, that I think those two are probably the biggest takeaways I would hope, you know, that attendees are able to glean. Chris, what about you? Put put your accounting hat on. Any any key takeaways you would add to the list? I think that that education piece that Jordan talks about till the just almost seductive nature of kind of the the promise of of everything that we you know with hindsight look back and say how could these folks believe you know guaranteed returns for x amount of money just give me your money now and leave it in you know all of those conditions that create a ponzi scheme whether it lasts for 6 months or or 30 years you know i think to to jordan's point we're trying to educate folks on on what's out there and how to avoid falling victim to this or, you know, educating others in your professional circles if you're a financial advisor or, or playing a role in, in helping folks consider how to use and spend and save their money. Uh, just to, to be able to ask that question about, okay, well, why does this happen so consistently? What are the other issues going on here? Because sometimes, you know, some of these investments may not be guaranteed, but they may still be too good to be true. And following that vein through beyond just the surface level red flags is really that thinking that I hope we can instill in, in our attendees, right? We're kind of kicking into our coverage here with the certified fraud examiners attending the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners Global Fraud Conference. But heightening that level of thinking to, to take all of these schemes together and find the through lines between them, I think is going to be really valuable for the attendees. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Chris, can you tell me, is it too late to sign up? Can I stream it online? Will I be able to watch it on demand later? How can I check out this presentation that you and Jordan are putting together? The conference is in person after having a hybrid model last year. However, there are many virtual options. If you go to www.acfe.com slash fraudconf, that's the first four letters of conference, you'll be able to see any of the virtual options. You can sign up a la carte for individual sessions. I would recommend the one on Ponzi schemes. But you can also attend the conference virtually if you don't already have your bookings set for Nashville next week. Awesome. Well, I think we've we've done the Ponzi schemes top to bottom. Uh, Jordan, Kurt, as you guys know, we usually end our episodes with something a little bit lighter on topic. Uh, today, we're going to play a game I have put together called Ponzi or Fraud. Yes, that's right. Ponzi or Fraud. I'm going to read you a headline regarding a <laughs> potential Ponzi circumstance, and you both will have to guess whether that headline is actually related to a real Ponzi scheme or if that circumstance is fabricated and a fraud, right? So Ponzi or fraud, we're going to do a little bit of a practice session here. Kurt, I'm going to give you this practice question. Here's your headline. <laughs> All right. Former chairman of NASDAQ uses Ponzi proceeds to buy various bull-related artworks and mega yachts. Um, Is that uh, a Ponzi scheme or a fraud? I'm going to say Ponzi because it was literally in the headline. That's right, but that's also a characterization of Bernie Madoff. <laughs> Bernie Madoff was a former chairman of NASDAQ and had a collection of bull-related memorabilia, obviously a, a focus on the bull market a nomenclature, the bull profile series by Roy Lichtenstein, a golden bull statue on his desk, and he named his 27-foot mega yacht 
the word bull. Kurt, I think we can add a four-little word after that boat name if we want to talk about the Ponzi <laughs> scheme. So that's that's the name. Well, and I have to jump in too, Chris, just to, to, you know, if you're talking about artwork that Madoff bought, you know, I think the, the funniest thing to me was he literally had a, a couple foot sculpture of a screw in his office. That's correct. So <laughs> he's the, uh, quite the collector. Unbelievable. <laughs> All right, we're going to get into the game for real. Jordan, this one is for you. Here's your headline. Futures trader loses over 400000 in investor funds with failed lunar cycle trading strategy. Jordan, is this a Ponzi or a fraud? I'm going to say Ponzi because I've written about several Ponzi schemes that have to do with astrology or astronomy. You are correct. In 2013, a Florida man was sentenced to three years in prison for mail fraud in order to pay almost a million in restitution after promising investors he could beat the market with his calculations based on changing human behavior and stock market moves based on the gravitational pull of the Earth and the Moon. Unfortunately, that did not come to fruition, and he was put behind bars. Great call. All right, Kurt, you're up. Your headline. Your headline, Kurt, quote, Aztec Pyramid alien technology investment firm bilks investors for more than $5 million. Kurt, is that a real Ponzi or a fraudulent headline? Whew, I'm going to say Ponzi-like. Can I use that? The SEC loves to call things Ponzi-like that kind of feel like a Ponzi, but maybe they're not. I don't know. All right. All right. I'm going to go Ponzi. I'm not going to hedge. Ponzi. Qualifications from the defense bar. Shocking. Unfortunately, Kurt, that is a outright fraud. I made that one up based on the polarizing plot lines of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull in 2008. There has not been, at least to my knowledge, an Aztec pyramid alien technology related Ponzi scheme. We'll give you a a follow-up to that one, Kurt. Uh, Here's your next headline. Indian man claiming to be reincarnated Hindu goddess swindles investors out of more than 4 million in alleged Ponzi scheme. Kurt, is that headline a true Ponzi scheme or a fraud? I I got the last one wrong, so I guess I'm going to take the same answer again. I'm going to go with Ponzi. That is wildly correct, Kurt. There was an individual who claimed to be a Hindu goddess's reincarnation and said that because of the favor of the goddess, he would be able to triple investor funds in just three short days, raising over $4 million, but unfortunately somehow was not able to triple that money, uh, later telling his investors it was actually more like seven days for, for the magic to work, and then actually maybe 25 days to triple that return. That's directly from PonziTracker.com. So Jordan, I don't know if you have anything else regarding our Hindu reincarnation on that one. No, the only thing I would say is, you know, people people obviously see all the headlines about the Ponzi schemes occurring in, you know, the US, but you know, it's actually pretty amazing. You know, the Ponzi is a global phenomenon. It's not limited to the US, like you said, the whether it's the the Hindu, you know, reincarnated goddess, whether it's people raising emu, you name it. You know, they're they're all over the world. That's and right. the uh, the schemes keep getting wackier. All right, Jordan, here's our final one for you, Ponzi or fraud. Man bilked Mennonite community out of more than 40 million in pigeon racing Ponzi scheme. Jordan, is that a Ponzi headline or a fraudulent headline? I'm going to say fraud only because I don't, it doesn't ring a bell. It doesn't ring a bell to you because it is a real Ponzi, but predates Ponzi tracker. Back in 2008, a man named Alan Galbraith was selling pigeon pears 
to farmers for a few thousand dollars, promising to buy back the offspring of those pigeons, which were touted as being racing quality pigeons. I know the sentences I'm saying probably don't make a lot of sense to to a lot of people out there, but when we get down to the brass tacks and the numbers, he took in about $42 million from unknowing farmers in the um, Amish and Mennonite communities, and when the scheme collapsed, had had promises to buy back over $356 million of future bird offspring. So those of you who are not in the pigeon racing circles probably have not heard about this Ponzi scheme from back in the mid-2000s. All flavors, all types, as we play our game of Ponzi's or fraud. No animals or reptiles are safe, it seems, in the uh, the ideas. That is true. That is true. Jordan, that (laughs) wraps up our discussion with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Insecurities Podcast. Any parting words for our listeners? It's been a pleasure. All I can say is keep asking questions, and with with luck, the number of schemes will ultimately decline. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Jordan Maglich, founder of PonziTracker.com. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.